Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Andrew Sullivan. He has been one of the most prominent commentators in the United States in the last 30 years, former editor at the New Republic, writer at New York Times Magazine, the Atlantic founding editor of The Daily Dish. A collection of essays is out, uh, out on a limb. Selected writings, 1989 to 2021, our topic today. Welcome, Mr. Sullivan. Thanks for having me. Uh, first, uh, a big question. You, you put all these together. You went back to the late 80s. Uh, I mean, the big change, obviously, is is the Internet, the, the advent of the screen. But is there anything else that you would single out has remarkably changed in magazine journalism in particular since since the the late 80s well the magazine itself has kind of disintegrated it's it's a online media means that everything is completely disaggregated and uh, and so if a magazine was a group of people getting together to produce something on paper that if in some ways they were connected by staples uh and so that you've got a bundle of people together, and that bundle also represented a kind of mood or a persuasion or a, or a sensibility mm-hmm. or an ideology even, then you you had a magazine. Now that can't really exist. All it can exist is if you yourself create your own magazine by picking and choosing and selecting and aggregating the sources you, you like to read online. And that's just simply a bit of a shame but unfortunately, it's just the way technology is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess it changes the relationship of writers to the the magazine that they work for. They're, they're sort of more their own brand. Is that a big part of this? That, that happens too, yes. I mean, for me, when I was editing a magazine, I, I had several worries. One were the readers, the other were the advertisers. The others were my colleagues. And then there was the publisher, the person who actually paid the bills. And that was quite a juggling act every week, which you had to constrain and, and soothe, and you had to do political uh, management. You had to like make sure that if there were big fights on staff, it was all played out reasonably and fairly and interestingly in the pages of the magazine. Um, all of that disappeared overnight. I didn't have to negotiate anything with anyone. I had no publisher. I had no colleagues, hmm. I had no editors, and I could immediately reach anyone on the planet. And when I started to do that in the turn of the century, really, in 2000, when the dish started, 
it was kind of a liberation in many ways. A liberation, of course, that went on to to be a victim of its own success in many ways and become an era of distraction. And what's interesting in the book is you can see that happen. You can see the essay, Why I Blog, which mm-hmm. is really an essay about the beginnings of the Internet. And then you can go forward a few years and you can see... I used to be a human being. What happened <laughs> right. when I had a, basically a breakdown after living online for 15 years every single day? And so well, I think what's kind of interesting about it and why I did it chronologically is that you can actually, if you read it, and you can dip in and out, but if you read it, you can see the arc of certain things happening. Mm-hmm. You can see the arc of the media shifting. Uh, you can see the arc of conservatism in America kind of cresting and then degenerating and then, then curdling towards the end of the 30 years. You can see liberalism sort of rise to its peak in the 1990s and then slowly decline. When I say liberalism, I mean classical liberalism in the sense of mm-hmm. free markets and uh, free minds and free, free uh, and open borders in a way. You can see that climax at some point and then retreat as well. And as you see old themes of conservatism and nationalism slip into the discourse. So it's kind of fun to to look and see a writer who who was responding to these events in real time from the perspective of 30 years' time in the future. Uh, Yeah, I should tell our listeners that there are many, many entries. Some of them are only a a couple of pages long, and that does give a nice, broad panorama, I think. So it's not just 10 essays that we have as as a collection. It really is uh, almost a chronicle of, of 30 years. Right. Of, it's, of it's actually 62, 62 separate essays. Yeah. It's what the Germans used to call Gesammelsgeschriften. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's a lot. And uh, what I hope to do with it is not just show the chronology, but also a variety of topics. So there's a, a piece about what Princess Diana did to the British monarchy. There's a celebration of Margaret Thatcher as a, a liberating feminist. There's a defense of Monica Lewinsky uh, yes. against, uh, against uh, Bill Clinton. There is um, an appreciation of Bayard Rustin, the great uh, unsung hero of the civil rights movement. Yep. Um, there's a take on Abraham Lincoln's sexuality. Yep. Um, there's a whole bunch of different stuff in there, well, well, along with, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and let's get into some of, those, some of those details. One of the early essays on, in the book is on Michael Oakeshott. Uh, who was he? Right. What did he mean to you? Well, he is in a way a kind of, incredibly important figure to me. I, I came to America when I was just turned 21, and I was a pretty right-wing conservative at that point, but I decided, you know, I hadn't really thought everything through, and I really needed to do that. So I went to Harvard, and I did a PhD in political theory and read everyone I could and tried to figure out exactly where I fit into the world and into the, the world of political philosophy. And, and I was reading the introduction to Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, you know, classic text. And it was written by this man called Michael Oakeshott. And I was absolutely compelled by the, the introduction. And so I then looked up some other essays that he's written. And then sooner or later, I became kind of obsessed with this guy. But why would I get obsessed with him? I think because, in a way, he, he manages to reconcile conservatism with the modern world. He understands that most of conservatism really is dealing with loss, with a sense of the past going away, with things we value that we're losing. 
yeah. with a sense of cultural decline or a sense of dislocation. And the conservative instinct is to preserve things that are worth preserving. And the conservative temperament is also one that is very suspicious of ideology of all kinds and of zeal of all kinds, mm-hmm. whether that be right-wing zeal or left-wing zeal. It's a, it's a temperament that believes in moderation and prudence and prudential judgment. And in the modern world, what Oakeshott really argued was the conservative challenge was to defend liberal democracy, the, the way of life that had emerged in Western Europe and the United States in the 18th, 19th, and then 20th centuries. This really precious inheritance of a, a free society with a limited government, with free press, with elections, but with limits and moderation and balance and property rights. And, and that is what is worth conserving. And so I think in that way, Oakeshott saved me from becoming just a nostalgic or a reactionary. And maybe see conservatism as a way to preserve the best of our liberal society yeah. um, and, and, to, and to protect it with conservative means. In other words, without radicalism, without zeal, without ideology and with prudence. In, in 1996, you have an essay entitled, a uh, short piece entitled My America, filled with gratitude. Did you believe in the, that America in the 90s was, when you looked at the full range of nations on Earth, that uh, America pretty much was the closest to, to uh, that kind of conservatism? I do think it was in many ways. We forget. I remember mean, the time, you know, I had to... I had a dinner with Charles Murray, and uh, and I said, you know, when you look around us today and you see the trends in the world, you see that you've had in, in America, you see this really flourishing of internet culture, of capitalism, you see welfare reform, you see declining levels of crime, you see declining levels of abortion, you see uh, uh, lower levels of promiscuity, you see beginning of the family reconstituting itself after the trauma of the 60s and 70s. It was actually a pretty good time to be alive. Um, when you look back at it, I think of it as sort of like the Seinfeld era, um, in which you know, nothing truly mattered that much, in which we were happy to live in a free society at peace. But of course, history never stops, and, and that came to an end on 9-11. And that's sort of a turning point in the book, I think, and you begin to see from then on a kind of darkening of the skies, uh, the resurgence of old feelings of, 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 of racial identity that emerges, um, of, of, of civilizational vulnerability, of a fear of religious fanaticism coming to destroy us. Um, and, and as technology begins to make all that ever more universal, uh, are grappling with the consequences of it. And that includes social media, which, which has really helped divide us even further into the, into the two tribes that America has unfortunately become. Yeah. You, uh, you go look back at the 90s, and you mentioned the Monica Lewinsky piece. Uh, what, what was, you, you say it was a defense of Monica Lewinsky, what was your defense then? And when you went back and assembled these essays... Do you still feel the same way about about her and that whole episode? I mean, you you actually refer, you refer to the Star Report as a case of both quote weird porno puritanism. 
<laughs> so, uh, look. but 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 um, yeah. What was your take then? And and as you look at back on it now, you agree. You still you still hold that. Well, if you remember at the time, people were uh, scolding Monica Lewinsky as this tramp that she had entrapped the president. I actually went to. I can't believe I'm telling you this, but I went to lunch once with Barbara Streisand of all people, and uh, and I mentioned uh, Paula Jones and I mentioned Monica Lewinsky. And she responded and said, oh, they're just curvous, curvous, like little whores. And if you remember, all these feminists that had previously talked of the necessity of treating women with dignity and respect suddenly came to defend Bill Clinton against a a 21-year-old intern. I mean, and a, 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 Andrew, it's the he's the president of the United States. I mean, she's she's got to have wide eyes beyond it. Yeah. Well, yes, of course. Um, but the point is that, that he exploited that. Yeah. yeah. There could be yeah. no bigger power differential between than between a president and an intern. And that is a, <clears throat> and that was a, an abuse of power. Now, I think it was an abuse of power and I think it was a worse abuse of power. That he uh, that he perjured himself uh, under oath in lying about that affair, but do I think it was worth impeaching the guy over? No, and and, uh, and well, the, the, the Republicans in the in the ninety eight midterms they paid for that, didn't they? They paid for that, but also they began to adopt this rather scolding view of America that it was immoral, that it was degenerate that uh, you had people like Robert Bork talking about, you know, a new Gomorrah in America. It's similar to me now, some, some on the right who are beginning to attack America as somehow not free, not as free as Hungary, as Tucker Carlson said this week. Um, and there's a moment when conservatives, and indeed, of course, the left in many times over the last 30 years, have actually begun to demonize America, to actually say America is the problem. Um, I think whenever any political party starts doing that and stops believing in this place, this messy, uh, diverse, but vibrant place, then they're in trouble. You, you mentioned uh, our magazine, First Things, and you, you, you talk about, uh, particularly Father Newhouse, as converting politics into, quote, a neo-religious revival. I'm, I'm not sure our readers at the time would have disagreed with that. Uh, do you think the Theocon force was was a big influence on American politics in, what, what maybe 1995 to 2005? I don't think they, they really changed America very much. In fact, I think if you think of the culture war, I'm sorry to say, but it's, it's quite clear on something like an issue like marriage and gay marriage, they clearly lost. Um, oh, yeah. I think in a fair and open debate of ideas which the book also kind of charts but i think my main concern with that issue was was the fusion of politics and religion the fusion of uh political power with spiritual truth and when you look at the gospels and and the book is written and it's by a believing christian as i am uh you see in it an argument that in fact Jesus in the Gospels never assumed or directed earthly power. He didn't want to coerce. He didn't want to force people. He didn't want to actually exercise political dominion. He sought to liberate people, and he sought to pay unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but then to really focus 
on what is most important, God. And I think that when Christianity has, has clasped, in some ways, the, the, the ring of power, it has often put itself in danger of losing its message, of, of doing things it really shouldn't do, um, and of ending up endorsing things that people really didn't mean to or want to endorse. And I think the separation of church and state is, is a great thing in the United States for religion and for politics, and the attempt to combine the two is almost always um, a mistake. Yeah. I don't mean to say, let me clarify, yeah. that a religious person shouldn't be in politics, that one's religious views should not inform one's political opinions, but that when you enter the political sphere, you don't use argument, you don't use an appeal to authority, to divine authority. You only ever use an appeal to reason that anybody of any faith or none can engage, because that is the diverse and pluralist community that we live in. Mm -hmm. And so I think separating out religion and politics is a crucial part of keeping America vibrant and free and keeping American Christianity uh, uh, honest. Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas. With campuses in Irving, Texas, and Rome, Italy, UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict, quoted at the University of Dallas, and guiding educators in all the departments of the university. Undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu to learn more. One of the strengths of the book is the, your, your periodic uh, insights into, you know, the, the deeper currents going on in, in politics and controversial issues. You have a strong... Uh, uh, analysis in your essay on hate, where you actually say right. something very interesting. You say that hate expressed by a group in power actually may be much milder than hate expressed by underprivileged, marginalized groups. You've seen that? Uh, can, can you give us, give us I, I don't know. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm against hate crimes laws. I'm against criminalizing the way people think. I'm in favor of maximal religious and intellectual freedom. Um, and I think when the government says, we are going to add extra penalties to you because you're a bigot and murdered someone, as opposed to just because you murdered someone, then I think the government's getting in the process in, 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 in the business of, of policing thought. And I don't like it. And I think in any free society, there is going to be levels of animosity and prejudice and hatred and bias, and that's lamentable. And we should try and counter it with persuasion, with moral example, but we shouldn't be criminalizing ways of thinking, and we shouldn't be analyzing the world in terms of groups of people according to their race or their gender or any other characteristic, and more just in, 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 uh, in respect to their actual individuality just being humans, just being citizens. And, and so, and when you look at hate crime statistics, for example, you will find 
that proportionally, the, 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 the group in society most likely to commit a hate crime are African Americans. That sometimes the, the, the groups that have been in uh, not so great circumstances have reason to be angry and sometimes can curdle into hatred against people and then can commit crimes for it. So in a weird kind of way, hate crimes laws can rebound on the very people they're supposed to protect. Mm-hmm. Better, absolutely, to just stick to prosecuting criminal acts and leave people's politics and ideology and religion out of it. So I would like to abolish all hate crime laws, and I'm really terrified by the way these things have become more and more uh, taken for granted and in which crimes which are maybe motivated by something completely different, like the Atlanta shooting earlier this year. It was assumed it was a function of white supremacist anti-Asian hate. There's no evidence of that at all. It looks like someone who had issues with his sexuality and his, and his, uh, and his, his own sexual sin who then acted out and killed people who prevented, p- provided the occasion for his sin. Yeah. It's not about race. It's not about white supremacy. It's all ridiculous. And the other thing to say is, just as I'm against religion in politics, I'm against wokeness in politics, which is another kind of religion. I want us to get back to, to deliberating with reason and pragmatism what is our common good, things we need to do, problems we need to fix, yeah. not to create a perfect world, but to make things a little better. You, you have an essay on a controversy that may have been an important moment in this issue, and that was the Danish cartoons. And yeah. your, your point there was actually that the West indulged the, quote, Islamo bullies. Uh, do you think that that was, that that set, set an example for a lot that has followed? Yes. The thing about defending free speech is if you don't defend it for ideas that you find reprehensible, then you're not really defending it at all. And when you provide exceptions to this, when you say, oh, we can't possibly harm or hurt the feelings of this group or that group, you are conceding a principle that can only be exploited further and further and further. You are, you are giving those people uh, some kind of uh, uh, lever over who can say what and where. Yeah. And it seems to me a free society, if someone publishes a cartoon and is threatened to be murdered because of it, you don't have a doubt in that situation. You defend the person making the cartoon. You defend the right of free expression, even when it is obnoxious. That's something the West is defined by. And it's something that we betrayed with the Danish cartoons and some of our caving to some of the more, I think, fanatical elements of Islamism. And, uh, and it was a shame. And, and you see then, as you've seen since, the creeping notion that somehow speech needs to be constantly constrained for fear it may harm people, may harm their feelings. It may, and, 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 and to such an extent that, that uh, the policing of speech on college campuses, but also in newspapers and magazines and books, has become an appalling practice. It, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is not the role of writers to care about harming or upsetting people. It is the role of writers to figure out what they think is true and to say it clearly and robustly 
And if they're wrong, to have it robustly and clearly countered. But this whole snowflake attempting to, to sort of say things that don't offend anyone, that don't, that don't cast, that doesn't cast anyone into some um, unholy light. I mean, it, it, and of course, it's selectively enforced. Right. So that there are some groups, uh, you know, white men, for example, whom it seems to be perfectly possible to denigrate en masse. A group that worries about bigotry will, uh, like the BLM movement, will have a, a slogan, ACAB, all cops are bastards, hmm. and, and claim it's fighting bigotry when they're actually taking a handful of bad cops and associating them with every single other cop in the country. It's one of the things that really disturbed me uh, last summer. was not that people protested police abuse. That's a good thing to protest. Uh, and, and we should be very careful and, and very strict about our, 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 our law enforcement abiding by the law. But that they then personalized it and screened these slogans at actual cops, just policing these actual demonstrations, providing the security to allow them to have their say on the streets of America, that they then turned to those police who had done nothing wrong hmm. and demonized them and yelled at them and called them Uncle Tom's and called them fascists. Uh, it's absolutely unacceptable. And, uh, and, uh, and, in a word, bigoted. And I, I, I really want to counter that bigotry on both sides. And just because you think you're not doing it, uh, because you think these people are, this whole group, for example, is apparently terrible or, 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 or a threat to society, doesn't mean that you aren't. You are. And uh, you should uh, check, check your bigotry, whether you're a leftist or a rightist. In 2007, early in the 2008 campaign, you went to an Obama event and you came away thinking, this is the next president. Uh, that was a pretty good call. Uh, what, what impressed you? The essay is entitled, The Reagan of the Left. What impressed you at that time? Whatever you think of his politics, Obama is probably one of the most gifted politicians of his generation. Um, passionate, able to rally the center, I think. Well, the story that I really loved when I went to see him was that he was he'd just come from celebrating the anniversary of the, the, the Selma march. And, and he talked a little bit at the, at the campaign event about how moving that had been. And someone in the back yelled, said, yeah, that was a great moment in African-American history. And Obama said in response, no, 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 no. That is not a great moment in African-American history. It's a great moment in American history. Hmm. And when he said that, I thought, this man understands this country. Uh, this man wants to bring us together. And, and this man is capable of defending our liberal democracy. Um, and as a black man, uh, that would do great things to heal our country and to promote the very values that America really stands for, of inclusion. But without the apparatus of victimology, of wokeness, yeah. and people forget Obama was very critical of identity politics. He's only recently mocked people who thought that being woke meant actually facilitating change. Um, and, and so I saw that in him, 
And I also could see his talent and his skill and his charisma. And I really thought, I don't see anyone else out there anywhere like this. And, um, and I tried to make an argument later that fall in a piece about his campaign for him to be exactly a pragmatic moderate. Now, I think, overall, he was. And I would defend him on those grounds. I always considered myself an Obama conservative. But I know other people don't. Um, but I wonder, when I really challenge them, what exactly it is that makes them think Obama was such a radical, when he really, by all uh, measures, was a very reasonable and moderate human being. Uh, you know, Obama comes after Bush. You wrote a lot about the Iraq War. Uh, did Do you think the Iraq War has permanently tarnished the historical condition of the neoconservatives? Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, for two reasons. One, it shows that there was a huge hubris, arrogance, about America's ability to somehow transform the rest of the world overnight. There was a, a hubris born of winning the Cold War, winning the Gulf War, uh, intervening in the Balkans successfully, uh, in which we thought we could do no wrong. And we became overly confident in our own abilities, and we believed our own hope. And that is what discredited it. And, and, and nothing has discredited more than the actual watching day by day the misery and death uh, that that hubris in some ways, it wasn't a conservative instinct, a very liberal instinct to believe you can transform the world. Conservatives think, yeah. what about their culture? What about their difference? What about their own uh, uh, society? We, we can't understand that, let alone transform it. But, but, but we, we did, and we failed, and that, that has permanently and rightly tarred neoconservatism. But secondly, in my view, uh, because the Bush administration sanctioned torture, probably and, 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 and actually authorized war crimes, they gutted the moral reputation and integrity of the United States, which was a terrible blow hmm. to the possibility of extending civil and human rights across the globe and the kind of democratic systems that we'd like other people to enjoy. So on two fundamental counts, on the practicality and the morality, neoconservatism destroyed itself. No one can say it wasn't given a chance. It was. And it destroyed itself. And in that process, I was wrong too. I didn't want to get the impression that I was some sage in this. I actively and aggressively supported the war in Iraq. And you have an, and, I, you have an essay, why, What I Got Wrong About the Iraq War. Yeah. yeah. And that's why I didn't want to put in the collection pieces that I now don't want people to read and I don't believe in. That would be weird. But I didn't want to miss how wrong I was. So I wrote this piece and included it, which is, which is what I got wrong. And I, yeah. I think, I hope to serve as a model for people who prattle on in public as if they know everything, uh, are then just proven, and then carry on as if nothing happened at all, and expect to be taken seriously. I think you owe your readers an apology and an explanation for why you got something so badly wrong. And it's only after that that you have to ask them to give you another chance. Um, and, and that's what I've tried to do, be very honest and candid about where I've been wrong and try and be open to being persuaded to be, to be uh, wiser in my judgment. Yeah. 
there's much more to talk about the book. Some some essays that I would single out. One, we all live on campus now. That that actually was a big essay for a lot of people, I think. <laughs> and that, I would direct our, uh, our our listeners to to to, to pay well, it close was a, attention. It was a moment. It was a moment a few years ago, and I'm like, hold on a minute. You think all this crazy wokeness is just happening on campus? Well, we're on it right now. It is it is spread <laughs> everywhere. That's right. And. Similarly, I mean, recently I wrote a piece called What Happened to You? Which was everybody's, all these woke people and these lefties keep telling me, well, what happened to you? Why have you become such a reactionary right winger? I'm like, what? What happened to you? <laughs> I, I'm where I was. You're the one that's gone blasted through due process, uh, blasted through individual rights, I, I, you know, blown you know, apart your... What I, what, I don't get is, it, what I don't get is the ganging up phenomenon, where, where 1,500 people will sign a petition against one person to get that one person fired. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't understand it. I, I, hmm. You don't understand it, but it's, it's probably one of the most common things in human nature and human history. People, I, <laughs> right. people love right. to persecute people as long as they have the anonymity of the mob. And we don't have to be held accountable for it. Right. And that's what's so dangerous about mobs. They're a way of people renouncing responsibility for their actions. Yeah. And the... they disinhibit people to do things they would never otherwise do. Right. But this new work religion, there is no mercy in it. There's no, no. forgiveness. No. There's no humanity in it. No. There's no belief that people can change or that people can be flawed or that good and evil are down the middle of every human being. And that we aren't divided into a world where everyone on one side is good and everyone on one side is bad. Um, And so the other theme in the book is the importance that I would argue of Christianity in the maintenance of our liberal democracy. Because Christianity is the great solvent of tribalism. We are neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female. But one, in Christ Jesus, in, in Paul's notion, this notion that every individual, regardless of where they're from, their ethnicity, their tribe, is equal in the eyes of God, is the biggest shift in human consciousness in human history. And on that basis of the individual, we constructed liberal democracy. And it is under attack uh, by authoritarians who think they want to surrender everything up to a dictator and by uh, group identitarians who want the world to be run according to racial and sexual and all sorts of other categories. Um, we need to rediscover the core truths of Christianity as they affect our culture and as they defend our way of life. And, and therefore, I think sort of in some ways the problem today and the challenge today is not so much political, although that is, it is a challenge, but also religious to figure out how we can reconstitute Christianity as a viable, meaningful uh, way of living uh, that can support our understanding of each other as individual citizens equal under the eyes of God, but never going to be equal in the affairs of men because we're a, a flawed and broken and different and diverse group of, of, of human beings. The book is Out on a Limb, Selected Writings, 1989 to 2021. Andrew Sullivan, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been lovely to talk. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. 
Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.